Well, thank you very much, uh, Louise, and good morning, everyone. I don't know what you made of all of that. I don't know how much of the Bible you think is filled with that kind of description of the tabernacle. Um, One chapter, five chapters, 15 chapters, 25, 50. 50 chapters in the Bible are devoted to a description and uh, of the uh, construction and the use of this building, this tent called the tabernacle. Um, mainly in the Old Testament, Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, but three whole chapters in the New Testament in that great letter to the Hebrews. So even though it sounds perhaps um, way off our own, uh, way out of our own world of thinking, there's something going on with this tabernacle thing that it would be good, I think, for us to get our heads together around this morning. But um, let's just begin somewhere else, I think. Um, Be it never so humble or ever so grand, what does your home say about you? (laughs) In, for example, the degree of tidiness or untidiness of your home, what does that say about you. I see a few slightly embarrassed expressions there. In the contents of the fridge, and whoever uses the fridge, or in our case, who raids the fridge from, the fridge from time to time, what does that say about you and the food that you like to eat or would like to eat if it hadn't been raided uh, the day before? The pictures, including the photographs on display, what do they say about you? The furniture and the decor, what does that all say about you? The books, the magazines, the newspapers, what do they all say about you? Every home says something, probably quite a lot, about the person or the people who live there. And you could go around your home with a camera taking pictures, and each picture would tell you something about not only your home, but about you, uh, the person who lives there. But there's also a story to a home, isn't there? Going back to when it was first designed, and then built, and then decorated, and perhaps redecorated and furnished. Maybe some adjustments, um, modification had made, an extension uh, put on, uh, re-roofed, the loft sorted out, some uh, cracks in the walls, uh, either they're still there or they've been repaired and so on. Uh, your, your home also tells a story, and it has a future too. You maybe have some plans, some projects for your home, for all I know. So there are pictures that could be taken of your home that would tell us about you, and there's also a story that your home tells, the past, up to the present, and then on to the future. And, you know, it's just the same with God's home. Although there's all these 50 chapters in the Bible devoted to the tabernacle, and, by the way, over 400 references to it around the Bible, and then, of course, the tabernacle, a a, a portable building, (laughs) a tent, really, 
then becomes a permanent building in the form of the temple. So there's plenty more that scripture has to say about the temple. It's a big deal, big deal. But if we pin it down from those 50 chapters to, for the moment, to one verse where God says in Exodus 25, verse 8, um, and he's saying to Moses, who's on top of Mount Sinai, receiving all these instructions, God says to Moses, get them to make a sanctuary, a holy place for me, and I will dwell among them. So this sanctuary, this tabernacle, God intends to be a home in which he will dwell among his people. And just like our homes, God's home draws pictures of the God whose home it is. And also it has a story to tell. So I'd like to deal, talk to you about the tabernacle uh, in those two ways. Firstly, the pictures... uh, that it draws, and then secondly, the unfolding story that it helps to tell. First of all, then, the tabernacle in pictures. And um, although I'm dealing for the moment in kind of the big picture kind of things rather than individual verses, it may nevertheless be helpful for you to have your Bible open at the chapter that Louise read for us, Exodus 25, and it's page 83 in the Church Bibles. And if you'll just notice for the moment the headings, especially a bit later on in the, in the chapter, you've got a heading, the Ark, that's the Ark of the Covenant, and then a table, and then the lampstand, and then the tabernacle itself, and I'll go no further in giving you some pictures of what these probably looks like. So there's an overall picture of this edifice. It's, uh, it's all portable uh, because it needs to be carried by the Israelites on their wanderings. Uh, when they reach the, the, the promised land, it will find a more permanent home in places like Shiloh, but nevertheless, everything is ready there to be picked up and taken, ap- taken apart, picked up and carried. There is an outer court which is fenced off with curtains, seven feet high, so you can't see over. At this end, which is the east end, there is an entrance with uh, decorated, embroidered uh, uh, curtains. As you walk in, there is a bronze altar on which sacrifices, animal sacrifices, were made daily, weekly, monthly, and annually because without the shedding of blood, There is no forgiveness of sins, says scripture. And then there is a wash basin, a laver, um, because after all that sacrificing of animals, you need to wash your hands and be clean. And then you've got the sanctuary itself, which is in darkness, um, uh, because it's got uh, several layers of animal skins uh, over it, and that's at the far end. So a courtyard, and the main thing inside is the sanctuary, which is uh, the focus of God's dwelling with his people. The whole thing is about the size of a small football pitch. And when you read in scripture about things being in, 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 uh, sized in, in cubits, a cubit is about the, the distance from your elbow to the end of your finger. So that gives you a rough idea of what a cubit would be. 
So that's the overall picture. And now a kind of a plan from above of, uh, of the, the, the tabernacle again. There's at the east, there's the entrance gate, the altar burnt offerings, a say in which uh, animals would be sacrificed. Um, and then the bronze laver or basin. And then the sanctuary itself divides into the holy place that contains a table of showbread, golden lampstand, altar of incense, and then another curtain dividing the holy place from the most holy place or the holy of holies, which contains one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant contains a few things, three in all, but most importantly, it contains a copy of the Ten Commandments, two tablets on two tablets of stone. The closer you get to the far end, the more precious the materials that are being used. So the Ark of the Covenant itself is of wood but overlaid with gold and it has rods through it because it's, per, it's, it's portable. Uh, the ark, uh, the word ark just means chest or box. It's as simple as that. Tabernacle just means tent. Sanctuary just means holy place. Um, above the ark are two cherubim. Please don't think of cherubs as rosy, chubby-faced children (laughs) sitting on clouds. Cherubs are mighty angels. Who wants to tell me, this is Exodus 25, who who would like to tell me where they they remember cherubs cropping up earlier, even earlier in the Bible? You know it, but you you don't want to say it, don't you? Yes, you you, you know. uh, Back in Genesis chapter 3, you've got cherubs, uh, cherubim guarding uh, the way back into the Garden of Eden. Uh, they have their wings spread out and they're facing downwards. Now, cherubs are, are guardian angels. They're almost protecting uh, the distance between God and ourselves because God is holy and we are unholy. Also very important is just the surface, which is the, the top, the cover of the ark on which the cherubim uh, sit or kneel. Um, This is sometimes referred to as the mercy seat or atonement cover. And that's important because just once a year on the day of atonement, uh, on that one day, the high priest could enter the most holy place and he would be sprinkling that cover, that atonement cover, that mercy seat with blood of animals that had been sacrificed. And all this sacrifice, all this shedding of blood is to show that our sins, people's sins, separate them from God and deserve death. But that God provides sacrifices so that life is given in death. So that God can look, so that God will look favorably upon his sinful people. So the atonement cover is actually really quite important, uh, very important for that reason. So that's the ark. The table that's in the holy place has upon it 
12 loaves of bread renewed on a weekly basis. You could say that they represent God's provision for his people. But also when you think about it, food is for much more than protein, carbohydrates, calories, fats and vitamins, isn't it? Food is much more than nutrition. Food in, I think, every culture is used not only for nutrition, but for fellowship and for friendship, isn't it? You invite somebody around for a meal, your first thought is not, uh, how many calories should I give them? But it would be nice (laughs) to meet together and share a meal together. Now, on a walking trip, I remember my my good friend John Cooper explaining to me the background to the word company, which we use as a fellowship, a friendship word, but it goes back a thousand years in French to mean to eat bread with. In fact, 500 years before that, in the old Latin, carrying the same meaning. So to eat bread with is to have company. So I think the bread on the table is not only to show God's provision, but God's willingness to meet with his people in a friendly way. And the other thing is this lampstand. It has seven, it's shaped like a tree with seven branches. And in fact, it's decorated with buds and flowers and fruit. Another question coming up, be a little bit braver this time. When earlier in the Bible can you think of a tree? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> a tree that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that was a fruiting tree, that was fruit, uh, forth fruit and brought forth life. The tree of life in Genesis chapter 2, chapters 2 and 3. So with the cherubim and this lampstand that looks like a tree that gives light and life or represents light and life, Do you see how we're harking back in these ways and many other ways to the Garden of Eden? Lots of other ways too. So there's some of the pictures, some of the most important pictures, starting with the holiest part of the tabernacle. And let me just put these pictures together to see what kind of abiding truths they communicate to us. I suggest these four. Firstly, the tabernacle tells us about God's desire. He wants to live among his people. That's clear enough. It's a place for him to dwell and meet with his people. Secondly, the tabernacle speaks of the people's problem. That, there's, that the access to God is restricted They are being held back so much of the time by their sin and may not enter unless their sin has been dealt with, atoned for, forgiven. Their sin has alienated. So there's no easy access. You can't just amble into God's presence and say, hi, here I am again. It is difficult. The The holiest place of all could only be accessed by one person, the high priest, once a year. Restricted access to God, but restricted access to God because of the people's problem. God's solution, he has provided a way of of reconciliation. And that is by means of the giving of life in death through these sacrifices. But the sacrifice is being repeated again and again and again. 
every day, every week, every month, and every year. And the people's response is that they may come to God by the way that he has prescribed. Next week, we'll be jumping a few chapters uh, further forward in, in Exodus to look at the incident around the golden calf. And that's precisely what the problem was when, while Moses was stuck on the mountain getting these instructions, they get fed up waiting and say, let's make something ourselves." golden calf that we can look at and worship no says God you must worship me my way or not at all and these truths are universally true they are abiding truths all implicit or taught by the tabernacle but the tabernacle not only draws us some pictures of God's dealings with his people It also is part of an unfolding story. And here I want to take you on a pretty breathless tour of the Bible from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. Ready? (laughs) Sit back, fast your seatbelts, tray table safely stowed, enjoy the flight. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. God and our, uh, and our first human ancestors, Adam and Eve, are enjoying friendship with God. They hear God is walking with them and speaking to them in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. There is fellowship, there is close friendship, there is intimacy between God and the first man and the first woman. But in that very chapter, we read about their rebellion against God's good plan and will for them. They rebel. They eat what they shouldn't have eaten. They say, no, we don't want to do it God's way. We want to do it our way. And so the Lord God banished the man from the Garden of Eden. He placed cherubim, there they are again, and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. They are excluded from that close, intimate friendship they had once enjoyed with their God. And so we come to the verse I focused on already in Exodus 25, where God says, but I wish to dwell with my people. It's not that God has been absent up till now. Moses is already being talked, uh, meeting God at the top of Sinai. But now God wants to be with them in a more special way and to travel with them. Mount Sinai wasn't going to move anywhere. But they're going to be picking up this tent, which is placed in the middle of the camp anyway. And every time they move, the sanctuary will go with them, the tabernacle will go with them. And so it does. The time will come when under King David and then King Solomon, a decision is made to turn a portable tabernacle into a permanent temple. It's not so very t- uh, different. The temple is about twice the size of the, uh, of the tabernacle, and it would build different materials, but it was basically the same. In fact, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the temple 
and remained there until it was captured and the temple was destroyed. But King Solomon, in dedicating the temple, prays this, uh, says this, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. No, they cannot indeed. And this was an important insight on the part of Solomon, and the prophets say the same thing. And so so, so does the psalmist. Though there was never any pretense that God sort of was limited to or merely occupied the tabernacle. The top of the Ark of the Covenant was merely his footstool. God himself was never seen there. His glory filled, uh, filled the tabernacle, but God's presence filled the whole universe. So there's something more to happen. And that something more, of course, happens with the coming of God's Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became a human being. And so the scholars tell us, we could translate it, the Word became flesh and tabernacled, set up his tent among us. God has come to us, in the person of Jesus, to be one of us and to dwell among us in person. No wonder they will call him him Emmanuel, because that's a word that means God with us. No wonder, too, at the point that Christ offers his life in death... The curtain of the temple, which separated the holy place from the holy of holies, was ripped in two from top to bottom, demonstrating for all to see that there is not now restricted access by one person once a year, but open access for all who will come to God through faith in his Son. And so Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, ascends, and after he ascends, ascends, the Holy Spirit descends to be God with us wherever we are. Do you not know that your body, he says, uh, the, the Apostle Paul says, to, uh, to, to Christian people, that your very body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And do you not know, too, that we collectively, as the people of God, are being built together into a dwelling place for God in his spirit? You, as a believer, we, as believers collectively, are the dwelling place of God. And we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, once for all. And there will come a time in the new heavens and the new earth when it can be said that the dwelling place of God is with men and he will live with them intimately, perfectly and forever. Three chapters in Hebrews, chapters 8, 9 and 10 are devoted to this. Here's a summary of one concluding section. 
Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter that most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together. Well, how could we give up meeting together since you and I collectively are the dwelling place of God? We want, we need each other. But encouraging one another. Have you, will you, have we, will we, do those things in response to God's loving sacrifice on our behalf? Have you, will you, draw near to God? Will you hold unswervingly to the hope that you confess? Will you consider how you might spur others on toward love and and good deeds? And will you not give up meeting together? but encourage one another day by day and week by week. Just in the moment, we're closing uh, 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 each of our, uh, of our talks with a question that we'd invite you to consider and maybe just mention to each other at the close of the service. And here's my question for you to consider and maybe have a chat with each other at the close of the service. What encouragement... Since Hebrews speaks of encouraging one another, what encouragement have you received from our time together this morning? I don't just mean over the last 20, 25 minutes. I mean our whole time together, from the time that you walked in until the close of our time when we chat together and, uh, and share together in the meeting place. What encouragement have you received from anything that's been thought and said and done this morning? Let's encourage one another as we reflect on God with us this morning. And let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that you have gathered us together as your dwelling place by your Spirit. May we enter more and more fully into the life which you have given us, into the fellowship that we enjoy with one another and with you. And may we seek out more more and more ways of encouraging one another and spurring one another on to love and good works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.